0: How much do you need to know in order to make a right decision? Sometimes we want to make a decision and we feel we don't have enough information to go on, but sometimes we still need to make a decision anyways. We're going to be talking about this in Deuteronomy 29, so I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word to open to Deuteronomy 29. We'll read through most of it in order to get the context. I believe in the Pew Bible it would be page 171. And we're getting near to the end of Deuteronomy. Remember, this is uh, Moses' last message. God is giving through Moses to the people of Israel before uh, Moses is going to depart the scene. And God's people are going to go into Canaan to, to conquer the promised land. And th- the uh, covenant, this, this contract, this arrangement between God and the people of Israel uh, is being, being renewed here. And so this is what we're going to be looking at. But there's something especially important at the end of the chapter. We're going to go through this, but the very last verse, uh, I believe, is uh, just really important and very, very helpful to us. So we're going to get through things, and so we're going to really settle on that last verse. And I'm going to show you uh, something from this that is a, a theological distinction. that when we think about the will of God and trying to find and follow the will of God— Something here that will help dispel a lot of confusion and just is extremely helpful to us. So with that in mind, let's uh, read starting with verse 1, Deuteronomy 29. It says, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant that he had made with him at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Uh, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Shihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle. But we defeated them, and we took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Let's pause there for a moment. You see at the very end, he's saying all of this is for the purpose of telling you to, to keep the words of this covenant, okay, so this covenantal arrangement, this kind of contract between God and the people of Israel. This is the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, I just have to reiterate, we are not technically a part of the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the, if you're a Christian, you're under the New Covenant, there are things that we can learn from this. There's the moral aspects of this, the, the moral law. That's unchanging. So things such as don't worship false gods, you know, don't lie, don't kill, those things, hey, that continues on. Uh, there's some things here, some of the civil or ceremonial aspects, you know, the sacrifices, food laws, and such that were for the people of Israel at the time, uh, but this was their arrangement. And in some of the chapters that came before this, and you can go back and read those, God had been promising them and and telling them, part of the arrangement here is, if you keep this covenant, okay, there would be a cause and effect relationship. If you keep it, if you obey this, there's going to be amazing blessings for you as a people. On the other hand, cause and effect, if you disobey this, there are going to be some really, really serious consequences, uh, punishments, curses, for the people of Israel to disobey this. And so here, they're reminding the people of, of what they've gone through and the things they should have seen, the things that they they should have known. And that's we he tells them that he went through them 40 years in the wilderness. And some of the older uh, people here were still around. They were youth uh, back when God did all these uh, miracles with, uh, m- through Moses, releasing them from Egypt and out of the hand of Pharaoh. And they'd also seen things, all of them, through these 40 years he reminds them, tells them, you're not grasping this, but pay attention to the ways that God is taking care of you miraculously. Your clothes have not worn out in these 40 years. And he says to them, you have not eaten bread and you have not drunk strong, uh, drunk wine or strong drink. No, you didn't have bread because you were in the wilderness. Uh, you didn't have wine, you were in the wilderness. But God took care of you. He gave you manna. He, he gave you uh, water to drink. You've been preserved all this time. When you came against these enemies, uh, uh, Sihon and Og, king of Bashan, for those of you thinking of baby names, consider Og, uh, but they were defeated in, in battle and reminding them this was not your doing. This was God working through you and allowing you to do this. Therefore, keep these covenants. He goes on and he tells them, okay, this is going to be for everyone from from great to small. Let's start reading again in verse 16. And he's going to remind them there's serious consequences here. If you disobey this, don't disobey. Keep God's law that's being given to you, that's being made revealed. 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen the detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You know, don't let this take root. Don't let there start to be this... this Start of rebellion among you with people. Verse 19, one who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So don't let there be someone who says, you know, this is all good. I got, you know, God's with me. I I can do whatever I want now, and I can sin, and it's not even going to matter. So this will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. Verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. He'll be killed. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in, the book, in this book of law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who come from, comes from a far land, will say when they see the afflictions of the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burning out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them therefore the anger of the lord was kindled upon this land bringing upon it all the curses written in this book and the lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day so he's saying this is what could happen in the future if you don't obey if you disobey these are going to be the consequences all kinds of judgments people are going to come from far and say whoa what happened to this place And you're going to be uprooted and even the survivors taken away from from this land. So what would happen in the future? Here's, look at verse 29. And this is the verse we're going to especially look at today. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that God has told us, and there are some things that God has has not told us. In this passage, we saw that there are things that they, they knew, or they should have known, they should have seen. Uh, they should have seen God's, who he is, his His track record in taking care of them, his track record in working in and through them. And one thing that God had made known to them, very clear to them, was His his law for them to follow. And through... Starting in Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy, the law is given, sometimes repeated, being uh, revealed to them, made very clear. This is what you need to do. God wasn't leaving them to guess. What do I do this? Does that please God or not? I don't know. God had made it clear to them. But there are also some things that they would would not know. What would their future response be? I mean, how is this going to play out? Are they going to keep God's law or, or not? And with that, when we think about the future and we think about, you know, what is is there something that's fated to happen? And sometimes people get some bad logic sometimes. They think well, with the future, if it's just gonna be what it's gonna be, if we're all destined to this, and they say if we're just destined to sin, then well, might as well just sin. Might as well just do it. If that's just if that's just destiny. And sometimes people have bad logic too, and they say, well, if it's gonna happen and it's just going to happen, then how can I even be held responsible for this? Because it's, it's just destiny. This was what was going to occur anyways. And again, this is where I think verse 29 is very helpful to us as we, as we think through some of these questions. Again, the secret things, we see this, there's, there's two parts. There's the secret things and there's the revealed things. So the secret things, those belong to the Lord our God. But, on the other hand, the things that are revealed to us, things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And why are they ours? What's the purpose? That we may do all the words of this law. So let me pull some truth out of this that we can think about that's helpful, I believe, to us. And the first is simply that we are not responsible for the secret things that God has not yet revealed to us. There are things that God has not revealed. If he wanted us to know them, if we were responsible for them, he would have told us those things. He doesn't keep us guessing on important things. But they're there things that he has, he has not given to us. And if we don't know them, it means that God has decided we don't need to know them. Or at least we don't need to know them yet. And through humanity, as we see through Scripture, God progressively revealed more and more we have more information than the people of Moses' day did, uh, and we have complete the completed scripture, but there's still things that we don't know, that we don't have all the answers. Uh, not just that we're not smart enough to figure it out, but that God just hasn't told us these things. There's no possible way we can know these things. Uh, for example, we do know that Jesus is going to return. Jesus has told us he is going to return, uh, so we know that. We don't know exactly when that will be. And he's told us, you're, you're not going to know. I'm going to come as a thief of the night. So be ready all the time. That's the point of it. But we don't know exactly when that's going to be. And I think there's no way that we can, uh, you know, if, just find that out ahead of time. If he said, I, I'm not giving you that information. There's some of the big, you know, theological paradoxes, some of the, the hard things to understand. We know that God is a trinity, Okay, there's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How exactly that works out? Still, that's a mystery. There's parts of that we can know, but parts of that that that's, that's beyond us, and God hasn't revealed. Uh, the incarnation, the the Son of God, uh, came down and became a human being. We, we know that. And we know from Scripture that Jesus had been always fully God, and he always is fully God, but he took humanity upon himself so that he's Fully God and fully human in one person, how exactly that works out, that is, that is beyond us. And some of these other things, how does things that the Bible teaches, on one hand, God is completely sovereign over all things. He is in control of everything. The Bible also teaches human responsibility. We, we make decisions. Those decisions have consequences. There's real cause and effect in this world. Bible teaches both. How exactly do we put that together? If God wanted us to be responsible to know how exactly it fit together, he would have told us more. But what he's told us is believe both of these things, even if you can't figure out how exactly these things work together. What exactly will heaven be like in the new earth? There are things about that that God has revealed to us, but there's a whole lot more beyond that. And you might be thinking, I'd love to know what that would be like. And for, in his reasons, God has kept us guessing. He's given us some information, but he hasn't given us everything. You know, maybe we wouldn't understand it. Maybe we wouldn't appreciate the way that we ought to anyways. Uh, God has his reasons, but there's secrets. There's more things to find out. There's also some of the just the hard questions in life, too. Some of the things that it's definitely not just a, a head puzzle, but it's a heart puzzle, too. You know, why is there evil in the world? You know, if God is in control, why does he allow some of these evil, uh, painful things to happen? And I think we can know some of the reasons you know, for that. Ultimately, everything funnels to God's glory, and we know that he uses it in different ways. But I think the ultimate answer, all the details of what God is doing, there's, there's more that uh, we don't have everything, especially when you think about specific bad things, the specific hard things that have happened in your life. You know, you can, you can guess sometimes, and sometimes God lets you know some of the reasons, but I think there's, there's 10 billion reasons that God has for everything that he allows to happen, everything that's part of his intricate plan of this world. And just what will happen next? We don't know the future. It, most of it has not been revealed to us. What will happen next in the world and in your life? God knows, but we do not know. So you and I, we are on a, we are on a need-to-know basis. That's just how it is, and there's some things that we just don't need to know, or else God would have told us these things. There's some things that, frankly, are just they're above our pay grade, and we need to accept that. This isn't anti-intellectualism. Okay, I'm not saying. So please don't hear me say this. I'm not saying uh, just turn your brain off and, and don't try to figure things out. Uh, this isn't anti-intellectualism. This is humility. This is understanding our limits. And that if God hasn't revealed these things, uh, just the reality is we we can't know everything that there is to know. Some things remain a mystery. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it doesn't primarily mean something that's just mysterious and spooky. It means a truth that is still concealed. It, it's not revealed yet. And there are some mysteries uh, that have been revealed to us now, uh, but there's still some things that are still concealed. This may be frustrating. If you're one of these people that you want to figure everything out, you would like to have all knowledge and know all this now. Uh, it can be frustrating, but I'll tell you, on the other hand, I think it's freeing. It's freeing to realize that there's some things we just can't know and God doesn't expect you to have to know these things. And he isn't going to res- hold you responsible for things that he hasn't revealed, uh, either by his, his general revelation, his design of this world, or by special revelation which is the word of God, and especially scripture that he has given to us. So, there are things that we're not responsible for. This next section here, I want to tell you this, I believe this is incredibly helpful. And some of you have heard this because I've taught this in other places or in Sunday school classes, and I've had people that have told me that, they said, Pastor, that that was really helpful. This distinction that that you're going to hear now just helps make sense of a lot of different things we think about the will of God. Because you can get into a lot of confusing discussions when you think about the will of God and, and what is God's will for us and, and for the world. And let me give you some examples here to show how it can be confusing and how we can end up with these contradictory thoughts when we uh, when we think about the will of God. Okay, let me ask you this. You don't have to, don't answer out loud, but you can answer in your head or to the person next to you. Answer yes or no about the will of God. Okay, uh, was it God's will for uh, Donald Trump to become president of the United States? If you have to ask yourself, okay. Was it God's will uh, for eight years for Barack Obama to be president of the United States? And depending on your political persuasions, you might feel differently about one of those you know, than the other. Will it be God's will for whoever is elected president next to be President of the United States. Okay, what if it's the person that you didn't want? Is that still God's will? You don't like that person? What if that person makes really, really bad decisions for our country? Are are those decisions God's will? How about this? Was it God's will for for Hitler to be the uh, leader of Nazi Germany? How about this? Was it God's will for the Supreme Court to legalize abortion? Leading to about 6 million born a baby so far? Was it God's will for the Supreme Court to redefine marriage so that it's no longer a man married to a woman, but there's other combinations as well? Is it God's will for each child that is born to come into this world? Okay, you might be able to answer in your head pretty easy on that. Okay, was it God's will for, in the Old Testament, King David to have a child with uh, Bathsheba who was married to someone else through adultery. Was that God's will? See where it gets, gets a little bit, little bit tricky here. Um, is it ever God's will for an innocent person to be murdered? What about Jesus Christ to be crucified? The most innocent person there was. And yet the Bible says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if you're thinking through those questions, and some of them you thought, well, yeah, this is God's will, but then you thought other ones and you realized, well, no, this isn't, and maybe some of those you had a tough time answering like a straight yes or no, that sometimes you said, well, in a sense, yes, but in a sense, no. And so I want to give you kind of a theological resource, a distinction that we can make that I think is completely biblical that really helps kind of untangle our thinking with this. And I think the way to untangle this knot is to recognize that the Bible uses the phrase God's will or the will of God in more than one way, in two different ways. And I think if we don't recognize that, it's going to lead to a lot of confusion. Because otherwise, you could sin and say, well, it was God's will for me to sin because everything that happens is part of his will. And if it's God's will for me to sin, then I guess it wasn't really wrong and it was okay for me to do that. But that's that's weird, twisted logic. So instead, we we can distinguish between uh, what sometimes is called, I like these terms best, God's sovereign will and God's moral will. That everything that comes to pass is part of God's sovereign will but not always part of God's moral will. So God's sovereign will, God's sovereign will is mostly secret until it happens, but God's moral will is revealed to us. And so if you're filling in your bulletin outline, this is where there's the, a chart that is there. On the left side, it's going to be sovereign will. On the right side is is moral will. And I want to just try to explain this and and make these distinctions and we'll look at some scripture passages that I think demonstrate this pretty clearly. So we talk about God's sovereign will. That really corresponds to the first part of Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so sometimes this can be referred to as the the secret will of God. Although once uh, it comes to pass it's no longer secret. Uh, But we'll explain this in a little bit. Moral will, this is part of God's revealed will. He's, he's told us this. This corresponds to the second part of this verse. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the sovereign will, mostly secret until it happens, uh, the moral will is revealed to us. Let me give you some definitions. Sovereign will. This is God's divine decree that determines everything that happens in the universe. That God has his, his divine blueprint, his plan that he had for this world, this big story of this world from beginning to end. And all of the different combinations, all of the different worlds and stories he could have created, he picked this one with you and I in it according to his plan. And this is e- exhaustive, meaning it goes down to every detail, and God determines everything that happens in the universe. This is part of God's uh, his sovereignty, the divine sovereignty of God, that he is ultimately in control of everything. A verse that talks about this, Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, he's talking about Christians, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, saying that God works out everything. Just everything ends up happening according to to God's will, according to his plan that he had predetermined. Okay, so that's one way you can use God's will, that phrase in scripture. The other way, we talk of God's moral will. This is God's revealed commands that teach us how we ought to believe and live. God has given us information. He has revealed to us. He has told us what we should believe, what we should think is true. And how we ought to live our lives, what we ought to, to do, what pleases him, what, what doesn't please him. Here's another verse. And I think you put these two together and you realize, okay, when it talks about God's will, it has to be used in two different senses here or else it doesn't make sense. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4. We're going through Thessalonian letters Wednesday for Bible study. Uh, perhaps you'd like to come and study this with us. But here, when we get to First Thessalonians 4, we'd read, for this is the will of God. So it's telling us something that if you want to know the will of God, here's part of it. This is the will of God for you. And it says your sanctification, being made holy, being uh, made uh, pure from sin, separated from sin. And it gives a specific example. It says that each of you, uh, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So he, he's telling people, originally the Thessalonians, you know, don't be like all the other people in the world around you that don't control themselves, that are committing all kinds of sexual immorality, saying uh, keep it where it ought to be. Sexual intimacy is meant to be between a husband and a wife that are married to each other. And when it's there, when it's fire in the fireplace, it's good. When the fire is out of the fireplace, it's, it's a bad thing. So abstain from sexual immorality. So this is God's will. It specifically tells us that. Does that always take place? No, it doesn't. Uh, That gets broken, and we know that. We know from the world we live in. We know looking at our our lives oftentimes. Uh, If you think of your own genealogy, you go back a ways you might realize, well, you know, I'm here uh, because of some things that have happened, uh, but you're meant to be here. But guess what? So this is the difference in one sense, the will of God is his sovereign decree, his blueprint that determines everything. But used in other ways, it is his moral commands, what he wants us to do. So it has to be used in two different senses. It doesn't specifically say sovereign will, moral will, in scripture. But I think these two categories are scriptural and completely make sense. God's sovereign will is secret to it until it happens, but always comes to pass. His moral will is revealed, but it can be disobeyed. To help kind of distinguish a little more, let me give you some of these characteristics. Again, his sovereign will, it always comes to pass. It can't be broken. Uh, Things are going to happen according to his plan. God works things according to the counsel of his will. Whereas God's moral will, hey, it doesn't always come to pass. People do sin. They do break God's commandments. We do things that that are not right, that we ought not do. So this is a big distinction between these. God's sovereign will includes absolutely everything, down to the detail. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the good things that God plans, the evil things that he's going to conquer, that he uses for good. Uh, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not that God ever does evil, but God still made a world in which he knew there would that we would do evil and that God is going to use it as part of his plan. But his moral will, this is only what's good, only what's uh, pure and good for us to do. The sovereign will is, is usually secret. The moral will is made known. So the sovereign will, it's, uh, it's usually secret, not totally. We, we do know it eventually once it happens. If we want to know God's sovereign will as far as who is going to be president next year, well, we'll, we'll know next year. And whoever is president, that's part of God's sovereign plan. Okay? Uh, Sometimes we can know it in advance if God tells us through prophecy, but most things, it's secret until it happens. God's moral will is known to us through revelation, Uh, especially and most clearly for us through the Bible, although there's some things that we can learn from what uh, sometimes we call general revelation. And we can see this in Romans 1 and 2. There's there's some things we can learn uh, from just the design of this world. Okay? And... Uh, Conscience—not that our conscience is infallible—but there's God has wired us with, you know, some sense of right and wrong that can get muddled because we're sinners. But there's things that everyone kind of deep down knows are are right and wrong. And natural law. This is looking at God's design of this world. That's why through most of human history, people were able to figure out that marriage was meant to be between a male and a female, because just the anatomy and the, the, the plumbing that's how it, how it works and it's only really recently that people made it into something different so there's certain things we can kind of get through natural law but we get it uh, most clearly and most fully through, through scripture that God has given to us and finally I say this again God's sovereign will is not something we're responsible to know I think I gotta find God's will for the future I gotta know what God's will is You know what? God's sovereign will, you're not going to know it until it happens, and you're not responsible to figure that out. We don't have to try and peer behind the curtain and figure out all these mysteries and to do this. It's going to happen, okay? And we leave that to God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The part that we are responsible for is God's moral will. What are God's commands? What is he said pleases us? And so instead of trying to do some kind of, you know, Christian fortune telling or something where we're, we're getting this, you know, special, uh, you know, appearing behind the curtains, this special guidance type thing, the main thing we need to do is just to know scripture, apply it to our life, make wise decisions. And we can leave everything for else to God for him, for things to work out. Let me give you some examples here. And I want you to think and tell me, are these uh, verses about God's sovereign will or moral will. Again, you don't have to actually yell them out. So I have, uh, I think, seven examples here. Because I want you to see that this really is scriptural, I believe. All right, <clears throat> James four thirteen through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to uh, such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. If anyone, you know, thought they knew what 2020 was going to bring, you did not, okay? Uh, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're like a little poof. We're so uh, temporary, but God is permanent. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Would you put this in the category? Do you think this is God's sovereign will or God's moral will? Come up with an answer. Yeah, I think this is a really good example of uh, God's sovereign will. You know, this is His His plan. God knows what the future is. We we don't know what it is. You know, we had all kinds of plans for for last spring and summer, and and you did too. And so many of those didn't happen because uh, we're not in charge of things. When we make our plans, we need to say God willing, because we just don't know. This is an example of this. Psalm forty, verse eight: I delight to do Your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Okay, how many you think <coughs> sovereign will? How many think moral will? Right, yeah, this is an example of God's <coughs> moral will, uh, delighting to do what God commands, what he requires of us as a good thing. 1 Thessalonians, that I mentioned we're doing that in Bible study? Uh, <coughs> 5, 15 through 18, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What do you think about this one? it mean got sovereign will? His plan that always takes place? Or does it seem to be commands? He's telling us this is how you ought to live. Yeah, I think this is an example again of God's moral will. All of these are things we're supposed to be doing He tells us these are good. Do we always rejoice? No. We're supposed to, but we don't. So it's God's will for us to have these attitudes, and uh, we need to try and follow those. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There's a lot of suffering in the world that happens. Sometimes we deserve it. You do bad things and you get consequences. Uh, but sometimes you do the right thing and you get suffering anyways. And saying if that's God's will, that, that's better for us. Is this God's sovereign will or moral will? Yeah, this would be a matter of God's sovereign will. If it's part of God's plan that you're going to suffer, like many people have, uh, for doing even the right thing, um, then we embrace that and we still do what is, do what is good. Look carefully then how you walk, and that is unwise, but is wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm talking about the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sovereign will? Nope, this is, again, a, this is God's moral will. This is what he wants us to do. It gets broken sometimes, but this is what God is revealing to us, that this is what is right and good. And one last, well, no, two more. <clears throat> this is a big one from Isaiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. For Jesus Christ, this is a prophecy about Jesus, to be, to be killed for us. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. What is this? This gets. God's sovereign will. It wasn't morally good for Jesus to be crucified. You know, the people that did that, that was evil and they're held accountable for that. But this was part of God's plan because this was the only way that we could be saved was by the Son of God coming in and taking the guilt and the punishment that we deserve and taking it upon himself for all that believe and trust in him. And then this is the last one <clears throat> from the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And it goes on. Let me ask you, your kingdom come, your will be done, is God's will always done on earth? Uh, this, that it's talking about. Like it is in heaven. God's moral will is always done in heaven. Okay, there's no one sinning in heaven. But down here, it's not like that. That's why we pray for God's kingdom to come so that we live as he being king And that starts with us, but it comes fully when Jesus returns. This is an example of his moral will. I think there's no way to have a definition of will that just means one thing and have these things make sense. But if we distinguish between sovereign will and moral will, it resolves a lot of this confusion. It resolves a lot of conflict, too. And I think it really helps us in decision-making, too often, we think we need to know about the future before it happens. And we need to have things figured out. And that can be paralyzing. When you have to decide, do I take this job, or do I not take this job? Do I make this decision, or this or that, or do I not do it? And too often, you know, even Christians resort to some kind of fortune-telling. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18 said God was against that, you know, trying to seek omens and these type of things. Instead, what we're responsible to do is actually pretty simple. We seek to do what is right in God's eyes. We look at his commands. We look at his wisdom that he's given us. You know, pray about it so the Holy Spirit helps you. Seek wise counsel from other people. Get a good, accurate look at what's going on around you. And then make a wise choice. Make a wise decision. And then you let the chips fall where they may, recognizing that God is in control of all things. You don't have to know the future. We need to just make wise decisions trying to obey God. And he's going to work out his sovereign master plan. So we go back to the verse and we think about this. If we're not responsible for his sovereign will, his secret plan, we don't have to worry about that. Even though we think that's really interesting, we don't have to worry about that. The other side, the revealed things, they do belong to us so that we obey them. And that's the last point. We are responsible to obey all that God has revealed to us. We know enough to obey. Okay, we don't need to know everything. We think we do. We think, I need all the facts so I can make my right judgment on everything. Here's a humbling fact that we need to realize. You are not the judge of the universe. You and I, we are not the judge of the universe. We are not the ones that need to know all the facts before I render my judgment on things. And you are not the one that is the judge of the universe, that you need to know all facts before you render your judgment on what you think is right and wrong. The one thing that we really do need to know, the one thing is for any decision, is what has God said will please him? And then we do that there's a, uh, a, purge, a Persian legend that I read about that there was this king that wanted to find a loyal servant. And so he hired these two men and he paid them in advance and he said, he brought them to this well and it had a bucket going down and it had a wicker basket next to it. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lower the bucket into the well, get, draw water from it, and I want you to fill up this wicker basket. And he said, I'll come back later in the day and I'll check on you. And so they started doing this, and they're putting the, their buckets into the to the well and, and bringing them up and pouring it into the wicker basket. And they're like, okay, we're supposed to fill this. And they dump the water in, and it just runs through, obviously, all over to the ground. And they do this a few times, and one of the servants says, what is the point of this? Why are we doing this? This is foolish. You know what? I already got paid. I'm not wasting my time doing this. I'm out of here. And so he leaves. The other servant says, well, well, was told to do this. I'll keep doing it. It doesn't make sense to me. And he keeps putting his bucket down, drawing water, dumping it into the wicker basket. And he can't fill the thing. The water just keeps running out all over the place. And then eventually he pulls up a bucket and he dumps it in. The water runs out. And at the bottom of it, he finds a a huge diamond ring. And he realizes, oh, the whole purpose of this wasn't really to collect the water. It was to find the ring. See, there's sometimes when we don't get it, when we don't understand why God is telling us to do something, sometimes we can figure it out. Sometimes we can get a glimpse of why it makes sense, because ultimately God's rules do make sense. But even when it doesn't, we just need to do what he told us to do, to, to trust him. I don't get it, but I'll do it. That's what Abraham did. That's what, what Joshua did marching around the wall. That's what you see time and time again in Scripture. They're not being anti intellectual, but they're, they're following the one that they know that he's the one that he knows what he is doing. What do we call it when you have to trust someone based on their character, even when you can't see all the details behind the scenes? And that's faith. That's what that is. And we can trust God in faith because of his character and his authority, and because of his his track record. Just like the people of Israel, notice that he's the Lord God. He has this track record. He has this character. So we can trust God in faith, and we can leave the secret things to him. This view helps us to balance and hold to both God's sovereignty, his plan, he knows what he's doing, things are going to work out, but also moral responsibility. You know, God is in charge of his part, we're responsible, to do what God has told us to do. And it is revealed to us most clearly in Scripture. That's what we need to look to. That's what we need to be reading and trying to understand. The hardest part is not knowing what to do. The hardest part is wanting to do it. So often we know what to do. That's the easy part. But it's wanting to do it because we have sinful hearts. And that's also why Jesus came and he had to die because we are sinners to the core. Yeah, from God's perspective, the future is inevitable. But from our perspective, it's not inevitable. You know, for Israel, what was going to happen? They knew there was going to be cause and effect. If they obeyed, there'd be blessings. If they disobeyed, there would be curses. We are not under that covenant in the same way. But still, the choices that we do make lead to huge consequences. That if, we're told, if you die rejecting Jesus Christ, you die without a Savior. And you are held responsible for your sins. The wages of sin is death. And you'll stand in judgment before a holy God uh, being condemned for our sin. But on the other hand, if you turn in faith and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then we're given righteousness because of him. We're given the credit for his perfect life and his, his, his death and resurrection for us. We're given salvation. And then we can live for him, not to earn our salvation, but because in love and gratitude, we want to please this God that we've come to know. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you so much. We come to you and we acknowledge that you are the the great and sovereign one. You are in control of all things uh, we thank you th- for your great plan, Lord God. And we don't understand it. We don't know what's going to, everything that's going to happen next. We don't know most of these things, Lord. But what we do know is that you can be trusted, Lord. We know that you are good, that you are true, and that you know the reasons for the things that, that you have revealed and told us. Lord, help us to be attentive to your word and what you have revealed. Help us, I pray that everyone here would have, obeyed and and came to you and trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if they haven't, I pray that they would do that now to be saved from the sin that we deserve because of our sinful hearts and the punishment, Lord, that you took upon yourself. Lord, help us to follow you in faith and obedience because we love you and we're grateful and we long to know you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, we pray. Amen. Amen.